And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Literally there, Israel again did the evil thing. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. As I've said, every time we've come together so far, the book of Judges is a downward spiral for the nation of Israel. And there's a cycle that repeats. And every time you repeat the cycle, it gets a little bit worse. And that's what happens in this chapter. The people, after the amazing deliverance provided by Ehud and Shamgar's in the mix there too, although he probably more belongs to the story we're going to tell today. The people went right back to their idolatry, worshiping Baal, worshiping the Ashtoreth. And uh, it's going to get worse this time. I've mentioned how even the heroes of, this, of the stories that we'll read are going to decline in quality, especially as we get closer to the end. So we have happy stories and we have people to imitate, but as time goes on, there's a lot more chaff to spit out when it comes to imitating their stories. So that's what we're going to see tonight. This time, the oppressors come from Canaan, which is a broad term for the whole promised land, but this is specifically from the city of Hazor. We've already seen the city of Hazor in Joshua chapter 11. This was the campaign from the north that came down and was actually the last major victory that the people won. They also had a king there named Jabin. So this is not the same story told differently. It's just that the king was named Jabin. It was probably a dynastic name, kind of like King of England. It's always like Henry or Edward or George, and it's like the fourth or fifth or sixth. It was, it was like that. And apparently they rebuilt it because remember, they had not finished driving the people out of the land. So Jabin and the Canaanites dominate Israel, or at least this region of Israel, for 20 years. And especially the figure that they feared here is a man named Sisera, who was the commander of 900 chariots of iron, which was a huge, as we've said, technological advantage at the time, especially in the flat plains of Israel, which is why Israel was often confined to the hill country, because to go down into the field meant you had to face these chariots in pitched battle. This was when the Bronze Age was transitioning to the Iron Age, so the ones who had iron and the ones who didn't, there was a major technological difference. And likewise for ourselves, getting right into our application here, when we fail, as we have talked about for some time now, to secure the promised land and to deliver it over to the Lord, the assaults start to come. The assaults come from these, these nations that represent the sins that the people were not willing to get rid of. And before we allow the passage to introduce the subject, I'm just going to introduce it for us tonight, that the issue this uh, chapter and the following one after is, is going to address is what you might call gender confusion. And you might say, that doesn't seem like what the book of Judges would be about. Well, it's exactly what's going to happen, actually. I'm not so much tonight talking about the crazy, trans, woke sexuality nonsense here. We're going to take this back a generation or two and go back to the simple rejection and redefinition of gender roles as laid out in the scriptures. Right now, we're having trouble figuring out I really shouldn't say that. There are people that are trying to push upon the country this idea that we don't even know what male and female means. Well, prior to that, and even still today, there are many that know perfectly well what male and female means, but they refuse to let anybody tell them what male and female are supposed to do. And that's more what this passage is going to address. This as a picture of the kind of thing that went wrong, an area of their lives they refuse to subject to the Lord and his authority, is the same thing we're doing today. We are also refusing to take this issue and submit it to the Lord's authority. Therefore, we face domination and oppression by an idea more than a person. To put it very simply, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 24 through 25, Paul says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And I've had more than one bride-to-be ask me, Now what does the Greek say there? It says what it says in English. <laughs> it just says it in Greek. But then verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Live and die for your woman, gentlemen. That's what Paul says there. Feminism has ravaged God's church and our understanding of the scriptures. This passage is going to serve for us tonight as a warning and a call to action as well. So let's get into this now. Verse 4 through 10. There's a lot of you in this church. We're going to learn about your namesake tonight. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah, apparently they named it after her, or maybe she was named after it, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, circle that, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent, verse 6, and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Probably not the answer she was looking for. Verse 9, And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. We are introduced here to Deborah. Would have been a V sound, actually. Deborah. Deborah. And it actually translates it a little more straightforwardly and then the ESV translates it here. Here it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. They, they don't fail to translate it. They just see it as a redundancy. But literally, the Hebrew says, Now Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. The translators saw that as redundant. Well, of course she's a woman. It says she's a wife. But by including that word there, a woman, isha in Hebrew, it's supposed to draw attention to the fact that the person functioning as the judge in the region of Ephraim was a woman, and this was unusual. I'm drawing this out, and we will talk about this subject at some length, because there are many people that want to use Deborah as a template for the church and even for society and how it ought to run, when in fact the Hebrew text itself is pointing out this was not usual. And she calls out Barak, who is a man from the tribe of Naphtali, and she says, the Lord is calling you to lead the people into battle. Take 10,000 men, and the Lord will draw out Sisera, and you'll defeat him. Now, up to this point, we've seen men like Othniel, about whom the Bible had nothing negative to say. Then we saw Ehud, who might have been a little too enthusiastic in his intention to take down Eglon. And then we saw Shamgar, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And now we see Barak, the next in this line of judges, and he refuses to go. If you get rid of all those qualifiers from his response to Deborah, who was a prophetess, speaking the word of the Lord, he essentially says, no, not unless my terms and conditions are met. Is that how we approach God? Now, is he arrogant? No, he's a coward. He's afraid. Do you see what I mean by the quality of the judges diminishing as the story goes on? And so Deborah says, fine, I'll go with you. But if this is the way you want to do it, I'm warning you, you're not going to get any victory and, and celebration and glory for you. But God is instead going to give it to a woman. And now you might be all sassy and think, well, what's wrong with that? It's shameful. That's what's wrong with that. The general of Israel's army ought to be the one receiving glory for his victories in battle. But he says, no, not unless you come with me. What kind of general is that? I'm not going to go to battle unless this, this woman comes with me because she's like a good luck charm for us. You're not supposed to think very highly of Barak when you read this here. This is a very disappointing story. If you look throughout all chapter 4 and 5, the men fail to step up and lead, and the women are obliged to step up and do the job the men should have done. And what is important for us to learn, as I hinted at earlier, this is not the ideal situation. Remember what I said at the beginning of the book. Not everything in the Bible is something you're supposed to imitate. Sometimes God is giving you a bad example. That seems pretty obvious, right? It's important for us to learn that the story of Barak is one of those bad examples. There's a lot of good in this story, but there are many that want to build a whole theology of female pastors, female presidents, female headship in marriage, because, well, what about Deborah? 
You've heard this before, I'm sure. But I have to remind you, Deborah was in an unusual position because all the men in Israel were failing to step up and do the job God had called them to do. So we're going to take a second to break down now as a bit of a uh, tangent uh, that is really not the main theme of this book or this passage, but this passage is misused so often that I want to make sure we get very clear what the Bible says. What is the ideal situation? First thing I want to get out of the way, there is nothing that is problematic about a woman being a prophet or a prophetess. Bible has many prophetesses. Miriam the sister of Moses. Exodus 15, 20 calls her a prophetess. And in fact, she is very often named along with Aaron and Moses as the triad that led Israel out of Egypt. She deserves that. 2 Kings 22, verse 14. It was the prophetess Huldah who told Josiah that they needed to restore the law and restore the temple and sparked a mighty revival in Israel. Not heard many young ladies named Huldah anymore, at least not where I grew up. But there are other prophetesses as well that are referenced. There's actually one prophetess that was falsely prophesying against Nehemiah. And uh, let's not be like her, shall we say. But not only that, you have women like Bathsheba, who even contributed a little bit to the book of Proverbs, we think, that her wise words to her son. We have Elizabeth and Mary in the book of Luke, who both had extended prophecies that the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave I mean, Mary herself was the mother of our Lord, which is a wonderful thing. But not only that, according to the book of Acts chapter 2, referencing Joel chapter 2, the Holy Spirit makes it very plain. The Holy Spirit will be poured out upon your male and female servants. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So in the New Testament, it is not even unusual, but it is normal for men and women to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and also to prophesy. This is so important to learn, especially because there are those that look at Paul's prohibition against women teaching and therefore don't understand what he means about prophecy. Prophecy and teaching are not the same thing. They can overlap, but they are not the same thing. They're distinct from each other. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 doesn't tell the women to stop prophesying. He tells them, here's how you ought to prophesy. And I realize I might open a can of worms with this verse, but I'll just give you the, the summary here. He says, every wife or woman, the words are the same, you can translate them that way, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So what Paul is saying is, I'm not saying women shouldn't pray or prophesy in church. I'm saying they should cover their head. Now, we don't do that. Why not? Because if you keep reading, Paul tells us later on in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians that the wife needs to cover her head as a symbol of authority over her head specifically for her husband. Now, that was the culture at the time. Women, if they were married, they covered their heads. And Paul says, so don't let this, the women of the Corinthian church, who had all sorts of problems, right? The Corinthian church was a bit of a mess. He says, these women were coming in, prophesying and praying in the church, throwing off their head coverings as if to say, the Holy Spirit's upon me. I answer to God and my husband, who cares? And Paul said, no, 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 that's not how we do that. You have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but he says a woman must have a symbol of authority, which is why we don't insist upon our women covering their heads because the head covering doesn't mean much in the American culture. But there are other things that we can do in order to obey that commandment. So the point is women are permitted and encouraged to prophesy in God's church. That's not the issue here. And I'm not, certainly don't have a problem with Deborah. She's the, the hero of this story until we meet the other hero of this story. So Deborah was raised to this position of a judge, which was unusual. But you will note also that it refers to her as the wife of Lapidoth, that it mentions her husband. Why? doesn't do this with any of the prophets in the Bible because she was a woman in an unusual position. And the Bible is very careful, as Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians 11, to emphasize that she was under the headship and the authority of her husband. You look at Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla helped teach Apollos and others the way of the Lord. But she is never mentioned apart from Aquila, her husband. This is done deliberately to show that these things were being done, but Paul is, is making the point, as is Luke in the book of Acts, and even the author of Judges by laying this out here. Even women who are especially gifted and sent to the church to have prominent positions, they do not cast off the proper role and authority of submission to their husbands. 
And I, I'm emphasizing this point because Deborah is often held up as an example of why we should do exactly that, to figuratively cast off the head covering in the Lord's church. 1 Timothy 2.12 is very plain, though. Prophecy in the Lord's church is something that is permitted for all of us. But Paul is very clear as far as the leadership and the order of the church goes. 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's rather straightforward, but it's amazing how many people work overtime to try and undo the very plain teaching of Scripture there. In God's church, He has called the men to lead, and He's called women to submit and to support the mission. And this is not to say that they're somehow restricted and you've just got to sit there and not do anything. We just talked about women and wives in the church with the gift of prophecy. There's all kinds of things to do. We read about deaconesses in the New Testament, women that were carrying letters from Paul to the churches. There's all sorts of things that women are called to do. But the order of God's church in terms of leadership and authority is that the men are to lead and the women are to submit and to follow. As I often say, God doesn't even call most men to lead and to teach. That is, it is even said in the book of James, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we'll receive a stricter judgment. God's order in the church is a priority for us. And people always throw back, well, what about Deborah? To which I remind you, this was an unusual situation, and it is not being held up as an ideal Deborah's ministry, as we see it here, is constantly calling the menfolk to step up and do their job. What does Titus tell us a woman's ministry in the church is to be? Or I should say, Paul, tell Titus what the ministry of a woman in the church is to be. Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Can you describe the average American woman as reverent? I don't know that we can. Reverent in behavior. Not slanderers, gossips, or slaves to much wine. You didn't know that the Bible addressed wine moms thousands of years ago, did you? Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. So who are they teaching? The young women. Is it okay to have women's ministry teachers? Absolutely, because that's what Titus tells us. Teach what is good and train the young women to do what? To love their husbands and their children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. What does it mean the word of God may not be reviled? Paul says the older women in the church need to train the younger women in the church to act as a godly woman should, respectfully, submissively, and kindly, so that the rest of the people in your Roman culture or your American culture don't look at the women in the church and go, they're out of control. And the men are going to go, why would I go to that church? It's just going to teach my wife that she can do whatever she wants and she shouldn't listen to me. That the word of God may not be reviled. You know, we try to give ourselves as much latitude as possible when we discuss this issue in Scripture. But if you want to start looking very closely at what the Bible asks women to do, it's rather traditional, my friends. The Proverbs 31 woman, who we love to talk about as a virtuous woman, was a keeper of the household. She made sure everyone in the house had everything they needed. She managed the servants and the employees well, so there was that administrative aspect, and that she brought honor to her husband, that she worked with her own two hands to make sure everybody had what they needed, that while her husband is outside the house hustling to bring home whatever they need, she's at home hustling to make the most of it. That's the Proverbs 31 woman. To keep the house, we are specifically told to train the young women in the church to work at home. It's very hard to wriggle out from underneath that one, my guys, and to raise the children. These are good things. Now, I will throw this out there because I, I know we need to expand on this because it's not what we're used to hearing. Well, work at home, does that mean it's okay for a woman to work outside the home? Yes, it is. My wife works outside the home. She has a part-time job. I'm not going to sit here and slam that. But here's the question. Why? Why is she working outside the home? Why are we teaching our women to work outside the home? Is it so that they can be independent and have their own life and their own money and their own way and not have to just be home all the time not doing anything? That's the wrong reason to be working outside the home. If you are working outside the home in order to contribute to your primary duty, which is to work at home, then that's another thing. 
But the problem is we are right now training our young women just like we train our young men. And don't point your finger at the public schools now. I'm talking about in the church. We are training our young, especially teenage women, to conduct themselves and plan their lives just as if they were young teenage men. We don't say, what are you hoping to do when you have your own house? What kind of man are you hoping to marry? What do you hope your husband does? We ask our women the same kinds of questions. Where are you going to go to school? What kind of degree are you going to get? What kind of career do you want to have? And so, what do we get? We get women going off and doing the exact same things the men do, and who then are unwilling to submit themselves to a role that they have not been prepared or trained for. Why are we not teaching our young women to look for a man with a great career, to find one? Oh, I'm supposed just to be, just to be a housewife? Well, what exactly is wrong with that? Men work very hard to find a great woman. And we don't have any problem with that. But somehow it's demeaning for a young woman to look for a great man. Well, she's just waiting for a prince to come save her. Yeah, because little girls hate that fairy tale, don't they? It's embedded. Sometimes, by the way, some of those fairy tales are not aimed at the young women. They're aimed at the young men. You're teaching your young lady, well, she's just supposed to wait in a tower for a man to come save her? No. Read through the illustration. The illustration is, nobody deserves you unless he's willing to climb the tower and kill the dragon. Wait for this kind of guy. Gentlemen, be this kind of guy. If you want the princess, you've got to be the prince. There's a, there's a double-sided thing to this. It's not scripture, but it's our culture. We used to know this. Here's the thing we're not telling young women. The best part of life is not going to be your career. Isn't that just the way? We, we used to know that too. That every, every you know, sappy Christmas movie was about the guy that worked too hard, finding out, you know what, the best things in life are, are my family. It's my wife and my kids. And when everything's taken away from me, this is the most important thing, right? But that's the best part of life. Wife and kids. You grow old, nobody says, I wish I spent more time at the office, right? It doesn't mean you can't love your job, but everybody wants to come home from the job to be with the family and to live in this house that we're building. Not just to have a big empty one that we never see. So knowing that, we have to remind our young women and our young men that a man who has a, an aggressive pursuit of his career can still enjoy the best parts of life. But a young woman who aggressively pursues that career may not, and in fact probably will not, be able to enjoy those things to the same degree. We have to remind people of that, to teach them that. Well, I don't have time for children. I don't have time for a house. I don't want to be home. I've been working all day. Well, if you've both been working all day, then you're not, nobody's making the home. And it becomes the place where you sleep and watch TV. Children are viewed as an inconvenience to climbing the ladder of my career, rather than, as the Bible says, it's one of God's goals of marriage, is to produce godly offspring. The problem is, we have let people that are not Christians, that in fact hate the church, hate the Bible, and don't believe in Jesus, tell us what gender roles ought to be. Largely, by the way, unmarried lesbian women pushing this agenda. Oh, is that too real for you? That's exactly the case. Who do you think is teaching the women's studies classes that are required for a lot of women going to schools? It's not godly Christian women. It's not women with happy marriages. They're going to tell them that all these things are oppressive. To teach us, and we have imbibed this even in the church, that a role of a homemaker or even a woman that works outside and yet has her focus in the house and on her husband is limiting. That a young woman who just wants to find a good husband and raise children is weak and stupid and doesn't understand her real worth. And say that there should be no limitations and no guidelines and no roles for a woman. They can do whatever they want. Despite the fact that God has a rather strong opinion on this matter. And we've imbibed it. We've propagandized ourselves with it. To now you even have evangelical churches going over on this issue. Ordaining women pastors. Talking about things like toxic masculinity and the patriarchy. Things that we did not learn from Jesus, my friends. And looking at God's word, looking at that passage I just read from Titus as hopelessly backwards, God holding up the ideal of what we have to train our young women to do, spitting on it and say, we'll do something else. Do you realize that this movement that the church has tried to make common cause with for a long time now is the latest manifestation of what God warned Eve the curse was going to do to her and her daughters? Genesis 3.16 this is after Adam and Eve have sinned. 
And he's laying out the curse upon the serpent. And then he says to the woman, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. We remember that one. But there's a second half to that verse. Your desire shall be contrary. It can be translated against your husband. But he shall rule over you. What is God telling Eve that sin is going to do to her heart? You are going to not be satisfied any longer with the role that I have given you. Sin entered the world when a woman usurped the role that was supposed to be her husband's. Satan went past the husband and went directly to the woman. Should Adam have stepped up? Yeah, just like Barak should have stepped up in this story. But you have to recognize that. We have to recognize that, that this is a unique temptation for women that God warned us about at the beginning of history. You were created to be a helpmeet for your husband. Because of sin, you're no longer going to like it. But I'm not changing the rules. He shall rule over you. We're living in a day and age where many, and in fact, I'll just say the representative American woman, not trying to call out anybody specifically in here, the representative American woman. What we hold up as the ideal American woman wants her own money, autonomy over her own body, her own powerful career, family, maybe if she wants it. If not, I want the option for an abortion. All on their terms with no one, not a man, and not even God telling them what to do. Is that what was going on in the book of Judges here? No, it was something else. But people in our culture are using this story, which is an indictment of men, to hold up that this is in fact the ideal. Weak men and women taking charge is what God wants. At the very least, it's equal to what he says everywhere else. And it's simply not the case. It reminds us of our own issues. Deborah was not wrong in this story. God raised her up for this purpose. But it is to Barak and the rest of the men of Israel's shame that God had to turn to her rather than to one of them. Was she wrong for being a prophetess or even judging in, the, in that way? No. But she spends her ministry calling the men to do what they're supposed to do. And when the moment comes, they won't even do it unless she holds their hand and walks along with them. We've got our own gender issues, just like they did in this story. So it was important for me to step back and give some solid biblical teaching so that the next time somebody just throws out there, oh, what about Deborah? You're prepared to answer that question. Verse 11, down to verse 16. Let's see how this battle went. Now, Hever the Kenite. The Kenites were the clan from which came Jethro and Zipporah, Moses' wife. Heber the, Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenite, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. That'll come back and be important later. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! Get up! Get going! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So we first get this note about the Kenite, one clan of Kenites that had moved north. We'll come back to them. Sisera gathers his army, marches to the Kishon River. They're going to come against me and my 900 chariots in pitched battle on the open plain. They're going down. And Deborah sends Barak out to fight. And you kind of get the sense that she's having to push him out the door here, don't you? Up! Come on, let's go! Hasn't the Lord told you? You already know this. I shouldn't have to remind you. Go fight. And it says the Lord routed the Canaanites. When we get to chapter 5, we'll see in verse 4 and in verse 21 that there was a rainstorm that came and the river itself flooded, which would have made the plain muddy and the chariots useless. So the Lord took away the advantage of the Canaanites in this battle. This story is what happens when the sexes are not at each other's throats, but we're working together. When women are pushing men towards God and righteousness rather than the other way. If you look in the Bible, you have several bad examples of this. Eve 
is a bad example. Delilah, Jezebel. These are women who use the charms God has given them to bring destruction into the lives of their husbands. And this unfortunately still happens to this day. But the Bible gives us a different ideal. If you remember back in Judges chapter 1, I won't read the story for time's sake, but you can go back and read it on your own. When Caleb was conquering that hill country, he said, whoever conquers the city Debir, you get to marry my wife, Aksa. Now, apparently Aksa was something else because Othniel immediately volunteered, conquered the city, and married Aksa. Now, once they get married, Aksa goes to her father, Caleb, and says, hey, thanks for the city, but we're also going to need springs of water. And he gives her another piece of land. It's a great picture of her inspiring the man who would be her husband onto heroic deeds for the Lord in the land of Israel. The ideal Israelite woman was the woman that inspired the Israelite men to take the promised land as God had commanded them, which is what Deborah is doing in this chapter. And also acting wisely to manage her household well. We kind of joked about it in Joshua talking about it that, you know, Othniel wins the city, but here comes his wife who says, yeah, but where's our water going to come from? And so we better get some of that from my dad too. So you can see her acting shrewdly, acting wisely as a Proverbs 31 woman should to manage her household well. Aksa is the example. She is the biblical standard, at least in the book of Judges, of what a woman, an Israelite woman should be. The woman who uses her beauty, her charms, and her wisdom to inspire and provoke her husband, I mean that in a positive sense, provoke her husband to righteousness and to good deeds. Consider women like Ruth. So wait till we get to Ruth. You might be a little surprised if you read this story a little more closely, that Ruth gets all dolled up in order to <laughs> essentially flirt with Boaz and say, hey, you know, you really ought to do your job as a kinsman redeemer and buy this land back. And if you do, you get to marry me. How's that sound? And Boaz says, okay. <laughs> what about Bathsheba? We see her later in the book of, uh, of Samuel and Kings that we know her, of course, is the one that David brought into his bed in that terrible story. But later on, she starts using the wisdom God has given her to remind her husband, David, that God had said Solomon would be the one to sit on the throne, not Ishbosheth. These are what godly women do. They use the beauty and the charm and the wisdom God has given them to inspire their husbands to seek after God and do the righteous thing. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 even says that a woman can save her, her unsaved husband without a word by her godly conduct. Isn't that cool? That's what God has called the women to do. Ladies, you are not lesser than. Absolutely not. You are necessary. Sometimes we men have to remember that. Although sometimes we're accused of forgetting it more often than we actually do. They're necessary. Men and women have to work together to win this war. If the church is going to fulfill its mandate, men and women have to work together and stop this foolish competition for who's on top and who's first and who gets to do what and just say, let's, let's get out and let's fight this good fight together. That's what happens in this story. Deborah calling that prophetic voice for Barak to do the right thing and then Barak does it and they win a victory. This is painting a very broad and, and beautiful picture for us. But let's get to verse 17. This is the fun part of this story. But Sisera, remember the general of the Canaanite army, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, circle her name, the wife of Heber the Kenite, who was the Kenite who had left, remember, from the south up to the north. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid, kind of hide in here. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. It's like putting a little kid to bed, isn't it? Tuck the little kids in, I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink of milk and tucked him in. <laughs> You're supposed to read maternal vibes from this story, by the way. He said to her, stand at the opening of the tent and see if there are any monsters under my bed. I mean, if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no, another weak, cowardly man. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. <laughs> Just in case you weren't sure about that. 
And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Wild women, as I said. <laughs> so here's an interesting twist to the story. The battle is won. Sisera is running for his life. Now remember, he would have been exhausted. He's just gone out to fight this battle. He's been running for his life, slogging through the mud, watching all of his men get slaughtered. And this woman named Jael, who was a Kenite. Now they were allied with the Canaanites, but remember, the, the Kenites were kin to the Israelites. And perhaps Jael herself was an Israelite who had married into this family. It's not clear. But in any case, she says, come hide in here. And there's a lot of maternal motherly imagery here. She tucks him in, she gives him milk, and later on it's going to say she gave him curds, which is uh, Middle Eastern yogurt. So he give, gives him milk while he's hiding and saying, don't tell anybody I'm in here, okay? We're supposed to read Sisera as being rather pathetic here. And so then what does she do? She drives a tent peg into his head. He was that tired, felt that safe. Maybe she was like, you know, stroking his hair. It's okay. Everything's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. And bam, right into his head. <coughs> Pinned his head to the ground. And that's how Barak found him. Hey, I know who you're looking for. Come on in. He's in here. Draws a sword ready for battle. It's like, ah, oh, you're probably not going to need that. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable, but I'm going to draw out what the Hebrew tells us. In verse 22, when it says that Barak went into her tent, that is the only place in the Bible where that is not used as a sexual reference, saying that he went into a woman. You see that an awful lot. Here it is saying he went into her tent. This is contributing. This actually biblical sexual innuendo is adding to the picture here. What you are accustomed to is to the big, strong warrior coming into the tent of the woman and having his way with her. When in fact, you see the big, strong man going into the tent of the woman and she's already finished the job for him. There is a, a, an embarrassing, culturally shameful gender swap here that she's doing the job he should have done. And so he's strutting around like the big, strong man. And in fact, she's the one that's already taking care of business. It's a very colorful passage in the Hebrew here that is not often translated into the English because we think it's indecent. But can I just tell you, if it's in the Bible, you need to adjust your perception of what is decent. It's shameful for all the male characters in this story. Deborah's prophecy came true. You're not going to get any glory for this story. Lots of ladies named Deborah. You don't meet any guys named Barak, do you? Not that he wasn't a hero of this story, but whose legend grew and grew and got all the honor for this? It was her. And many of us have heard the story of J.L. And we go, what was the name of the guy again in that story? The prophecy came true. And what you need to see here is that this battle was won through a woman keeping her proper and traditional office. How was the battle won? It was through a woman offering hospitality to a stranger, feeding him, put, tucking him into bed, and then driving the tent peg, which was the woman's job in a nomadic society, that they would set up the tents while the men did other things. She is acting in a very, and in fact, according to this culture, stereotypically feminine way. Although, of course, we're throwing violence and blood into the mix of this. The battle was won by a woman acting womanly when the men were afraid to act manly. Do you see what he's trying to get at here? Similar to what Timothy is told in 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul says that, that woman that he does not permit to teach in a church, he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does it mean saved through childbearing? I think broadly what he's getting at is Eve did not keep her proper station in the Garden of Eden. In the new kingdom of God that we're living out called the church, with the women, will hold to what God has called them to do in submitting to the teaching of the men, not trying to take over and childbearing, taking that normal maternal uh, domestic role, then that will be her salvation. It'll save her from temptation. It'll help the church. It'll allow us to raise more godly offspring and take the world for Jesus. And that's exactly the lesson that we're getting here from Judges chapter 4. All this I'm talking about today is not about the subjugation of women. You don't find that in Scripture. Plenty of examples of men acting badly toward women. But we cannot take the things that the Bible holds up as an example and say because our culture doesn't like it, we're going to reject it. It is the hope and the fulfillment and the order and the joy that God has. 
that when husbands lead and wives love well and husbands make a great life for their wives and the wives make a great home for their husband and together they raise these children and train them up in the admonition of the Lord, that is where we're going to find the fulfillment as men and women. We think we're finding it chasing other things. Well, are we happier now since we've been doing that? Christians actually value the work in the home. The, the accusation that we constantly get is, you're just telling women to work at home and just to have babies and cook for you because you just want to be the boss and, and teach them what to do and, and they have to be your slaves all the time. And we say, no, we, we value that work. We really think this is a good thing and we value it. They say, you're a liar and a hypocrite. You know why? Because they think those things are shameful. But in the church, we actually believe these things are good and necessary. We are traditionalists in that sense. But because we're afraid to say these things with our chest and say it out loud, we're losing our daughters. And because we're losing our daughters, we're also losing our sons. We're teaching our young women and our young men that having more money, having greater experiences, having more sex is a more valuable goal than what the Bible lays out. And in fact, what most cultures have believed in for a long time. That a man and a woman come together. The woman bears a child and raises up a child. And that child might go on to do amazing, wonderful things. And in so doing, that woman has brought honor and prestige and glory to her nation. That's how people thought. That together, we're building something. That the men have their active role to play and women have their active role to play. And they are both honorable. We've got to sell that vision to our children again, to teach them that this is a good thing. It ought to be the case that in the church, we're encouraging our young men and women to find husbands and wives early, to have children and raise them up. Why? So that slowly by slowly, we're training up a next generation of godly people. And then by the time these kids in our church are done, we're going to have multiplied the kingdom through home-based discipleship. That's the goal. When the men in the book of Judges failed to do their part, the women who did theirs were honored by God. And so that's the example we ought to follow. Finishing the chapter says, So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, this is a happy story. I know I've been talking about some harsh issues here, but this is a happy story. But we do need to remind ourselves one more time that Barak demonstrates us, I think, the, the first and clearest example of a definite drop in the quality of the judges. I talked about how you go from Othniel to Ehud, and nothing bad is said about Ehud, but you also look, okay, Othniel was a general, Ehud was an assassin. You know, what, what's really the ideal here? And after that, you got Shamgar. We're not even sure if he was an Israelite, right? And he did it by himself. He didn't rally the people. Okay, now we got, he's like, well, we can debate about whether that was good or bad. Now you get to Barak, and we definitely have taken a step down. We spent time tonight addressing the women's issue because that's the foremost issue in our society, and also because this passage is used as, a, as an example to push an agenda the Bible does not support, and many Christians don't know how to answer it. So it was important for us to take the time. But truly, Judges chapter 4 is a story about men failing to fulfill their God-given role. The bad guys in this story are not Deborah and not Jael. Don't get that idea. It's Barak. Proverbs 31.3. This is actually written by Bathsheba, if you can believe it. She tells her son, Do not give your strength to women and your ways to those who destroy kings. Now, in that context, she's specifically talking about Solomon, don't get mixed up with a bunch of crazy girls. Don't get all excited and all aroused, and now you're going to make poor decisions, and you've bound yourself to this woman that's not good for you. But it's also broader than that. We're going to revisit this verse when we come back to the story of Samson, who literally gave his strength to a woman, didn't he? She's telling him, you need to be, you're the king, first of all, but secondly, you're the king of your own castle and you need to lead and not give the role and the strength that God has given you to the women in your life. Don't make them step up into the place that should be yours and do not allow them to take it from you. Men, according to the scriptures, are to lead. How do you know that? Paul says because Adam was formed first and not Eve. I don't know if you can draw theology from that. Well, Paul did. 
I talked to somebody on the phone this week who said, well, that's just, that's Paul. That's not God. If you don't think that Paul is speaking for the Lord, we have to have a whole other conversation. Men are to be the ones who take action. How many times in the Bible does it say to the men, gird up your loins? She, what does she tell him? Up, right? Dress for action. Get out there. Do what you got to do. Men are protectors and providers and lovers too and guides to their children. How are we doing in this whole fatherless experiment we've been running for the last few decades? Not great. Now, I just say all these things about men lead and women follow. Everybody knows this and knew this forever. But what happened, I believe, is that a generation of young men conspired with the young women, not like in a dark room, but just culturally, conspired with the young women against the wisdom of their fathers for the sake of sex. We're going to smash this to pieces because then we can have all the sex we want. How foolish. How foolish. And we think that we did something positive. But what we are facing today, and this is a, an issue that I care very deeply about, we talked earlier about the, the stereotypical American woman. Let's talk for a second about the stereotypical American man. You got two opposite shortcomings. You got the, the Jacob shortcoming and the Esau shortcoming. Let's talk about the Jacob one first. This is weakness. Weakness. Men who linger in their boyhood way too long. Paul says it as a matter of course in the epistles. He says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And now we're holding on to them longer and longer and longer. Delaying finding gainful work and useful employment. Delaying having a family. Delaying getting married and having children so that we can enjoy adolescent pursuits. I get married, I can't go to the club anymore. I can't travel wherever I want. I can't spend whatever I want. Adolescent pursuits. Living like a 13-year-old boy well past that age. Life happens to us. We spend all our time talking about how the government did this to me, and that man did that to me, and my boss did this to me, and this, this society, and this economy, and the expectations of my parents, and I just don't know. Rather than getting up and, as some folks like to say, happening to life, rather than, as the Bible says, putting on strength, girding yourself, getting out there, so now we have a generation of men that have no strength either to attract a woman or to keep a woman. And what you've ended up with is a, a generation of weaselly men that in order to get their desires gratified are willing to stoop to lower and lower and wickeder and wickeder places. Force from a man is considered toxic. There might even be some of you in here who are the most anti-woke person you know that don't much like the idea of men in the church being forceful. But what else do you call Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul and Joshua, and Moses, and Nehemiah, and David for crying out loud. We have a generation of men that don't know how to either fight with a man or correct a woman. And yes, that is a man's job. In his life, with his daughters, with his wife, with his mother, there are times when correction needs to happen. I would say that we're in the mess we're in because we have a generation of men that have just kind of stood by and let themselves get run all over by their wives and their daughters and their girlfriends. And by the way, women don't like that. Oh, is that too much to say? Yeah, well, I'll just, I don't want anybody that's going to tell me what to do and lead me. Oh, sure. How satisfied are you in that marriage after 10 years? I've seen this episode before. I know how it goes. Weak, childish men. But there's also the Esau sin. We'll call this brutality. These are the opposite of that. Men who equate sensuality with masculinity, doing things that make me feel good and feel sexual and feel strong and feel, that's what makes me manly. And so we have men who are slaves to their own sexuality and to their own lust. What makes me a man is the amount of women I've slept with. You know who said, like, that's like an, again, that's an adolescent thing. That's an 11-year-old boy thing to think. When I grow up, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have sex with a bunch of beautiful women. That's gonna make me tough and manly. Why have we not grown out of that? We ought to be. Or men that think that money is the most important thing and despise things like honor and sobriety and love in the pursuit of money and status and riches. Not in order to provide for a family. I know very well the drive to do something better for my wife and my kids. The thought that I, I want my kids to have it a little better than I did. So they can have a little better than, their, their kids can have a little better than they did. 
but chasing money just for the sake of it. Laughing at things like sobriety, things like honor. No time for religion. That's for women. No time even for deep thought, because that's sissy stuff. It's too soft. Men like this leave a trail of trouble behind them. And in case you haven't noticed, and I realize that I'm, I'm much more in these things than a lot of you are, the pendulum is swinging. It's swinging away from, from the soft, weak, effeminate man. And it's swinging in a very dangerous and a very ugly direction. The men that are getting the views and the listens and the attention online for our young men, in one sense, you get excited about it because, oh, good, finally we're leaving that weird thing behind. But they're running headlong into something else that is going to be just as wicked and just as troublesome. Both of these things come from an unwillingness of men to grow up and be men rather than boys. And that is not this generation's problem. It has come from generations in our country of men that have been scared to death of getting old and have worked overtime to make sure they stay young and they don't act like their dads, they don't talk like their dads, they don't dress like their dads. To now you get a bunch of kids that don't even have dads, they don't know what it looks like, people who finally eventually come around and go, why aren't they growing up? Because it was never modeled for them. It was never shown to them. They were taught that being an adult is a bad thing. Why would we tell teenagers, you're living the best years of your life? And then you wonder when they're 30 why they won't grow up. These are the best years of my life. I can just keep them going forever. Where's the old men coming alongside the young men? Oh, they don't want to hear from me. Take some responsibility. They need to hear from you. And by the way, they do want to hear from you. Because they're going online to find people to say things to them that you should be saying to them. To be men. I'm not talking about being an adult. I'm talking about being a man with a house and a wife and children. This weird idea that men shouldn't like kids and shouldn't be around children. I'm not saying every man's got to be like your favorite babysitter. But there's something about your children Where's the pride and honor in that, by the way? Where did that go? We're talking about our salary now. Where did the thing go? These are my boys. These are my girls. Where's that honor that we ought to be cultivating? And guys, it's no good to do like Adam did and say, Lord, it's the woman you gave me. If it wasn't for these crazy ladies, I'd be okay. And, it's, and God's like, I'm looking to you, friend. It's up to you to fix this. It's up for you to take control. We don't take control. God takes control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We looked earlier at what Titus said the men are supposed, women are supposed to do. How about the guys? Titus chapter 2, verse 2, and then I'm going to skip down and do verses 6 and 8. Okay, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified. When was the last time we talked about dignity in the United States of America? Self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, no room for grumpy old men in God's church, friends. Love and in steadfastness. Likewise, verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And unfortunately, in the church, and I have to say, the pastors have been very bad about this. We've not been cultivating a masculine image of the Christian leader. We've been cultivating a very soft, effeminate view of a Christian leader. A lot of this has come, come because men have been abandoning the church. So most of the people that are deeply involved and have a lot to say are the women. And they typically are going to choose somebody that's going to make them feel more comfortable and speak more softly and talk about those sorts of things. And it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle where a man walks in the church and he sees some guy up there in skinny jeans whispering and talking about how his wife is really the spiritual one and she should be up here, not me. And he goes, I'm not sitting still for that. This is what we do, guys. We have to learn the word and not the world. You know, right now, the barrage of the gender fluidity and the transgenderism. I know it's still coming and it's still very serious, but my eyes are on the horizon because I can see that it's peaked. It's going away. It's not maybe going to go away forever, but it's not going to constantly be in the public eye like it's been. People are sick of it. They're tired of it and they're pushing back against it. Good. Well, what's coming next though? I'll tell you what's coming next. 
and I believe I have the mind of the Lord on this, you need to watch out that there comes a renewed call to hedonism again. A renewed call to just indulge your flesh and do whatever you want. Now that we got these silly, cancel culture, woke, scold, silly people out of the way, we can do whatever we want. Men are going to be men again, and we're going to have lots of women lined up, and the women are going to be free and liberated, and they can show their bodies again, and we're not going to have these people telling us that we can't do that kind of thing, and stop taking life so seriously. What are you, woke or something like that? What do you tell me to love my neighbor? You think I'm, you're just some weird left-wing weirdo? Come on, that's what's coming next. The church is making allies in this fight that we should not have. We don't need anybody else's help to stand for truth, because it's going to come. Things just as wicked are going to be around the corner, but because they're maybe not as weird, we might not be as prepared to deal with it. Men and women both are going to find their strength, as in this story, when we come together as a family in Christ. The church is compared often in the New Testament to a household. That Christ is the head, the church is the bride, and together we're working to bring about this kingdom of God. That's the story of Deborah and Barak. And in chapter 5... We have a song that Deborah wrote about that battle. And we're going to go pretty quickly through this, uh, but I do want to make sure we read it. Let's read the first section here. This, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam on that day. Are there certain passages of scripture that were written by women? You better believe it. We're about to read one. That the leaders took the lead in Israel. That the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. It's very similar to the song of Moses and Miriam from Exodus 15 after they went through the, uh, the Red Sea. If you look at the Hebrew, it's a very staccato poem. If you don't know what this is, in music, legato means very smooth. All of the notes connecting to each other. Da, 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 da. Staccato is kind of like a sound. Staccato. Da, 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 da. That's, it reads like that. Short words, short phrases. You can picture this, I, I think, with, with drum beats and a lot of dancing alongside. A warrior's kind of song. And it's a celebration of the leadership. Notice God's grace here, by the way. They're celebrating what Barak has done. God's not sitting there holding it against him for the rest of history. Hebrews 11 puts him and Deborah in, this, in the hall of faith. And it also celebrates that the people united. Verses 4 and 5 show us that there was that rainstorm and possibly that earthquake that helped them win this battle. To remind Israel that Baal is not, in fact, the god of the thunder and the lightning and the rain, but that's Jehovah God. Verse 6, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Man, I could just preach that phrase right there. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, and you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, rich and poor. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. This is a description of the bad times that led to the battle. You can see that it's, it's probable that Shamgar and Deborah were contemporaries. That Shamgar was fighting the Philistines in the south, while Deborah and Barak were fighting the Canaanites in the north. Remember, these stories are not necessarily immediately sequential. They're regional stories. Deborah is called a mother to the people in response to being driven from their homes by these chariots of iron. But they abandoned the Lord for other gods. In times of crisis, they turned to rocks and sticks rather than to the living God. Which made her concerned, are the people even going to come and fight? But they did. And so they celebrate. And they say, tell everybody. Reminds us, by the way, fearful times will come and come and come again. But God always raises up champions like us. Verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. 
Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, there marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs I, with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. The galloping, galloping there, I wish I had written it down. The Hebrew there is, it's an onomatopoeia. Like if you read that sentence, it's like, it actually sounds like galloping hooves. It's pretty cool. Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So she's narrating the arrival of the tribes who did come to fight. Ephraim, Benjamin, Machir is one of the prominent cities of Manasseh. Zebulun, Issachar, and Naphtali. So this is a northern central uh, battle that happened here. That's why you don't see tribes like Judah, which were in the far south. But Reuben... Gilead, which is another name for the region where Gad lived. Dan, Asher, and Moroz. We're not quite sure where Moroz was. They refused to come. So you can see that the tribes are already starting to fracture. That we needed help, but y'all just stayed home because like, well, it's all the way over the river. We're not coming over there. But it talks about how this, we didn't need you. The stars fought for us. The river fought for us. So that's why I say, probably a big thunderstorm where the Lord flooded the field of battle. He's like, yeah, you stayed home, but you missed out on the, the big victory. You didn't get anything. It's a great reminder that if you don't get in the fight, you miss the spoils, guys. Don't just go to church. Get involved. Do things. Verse 24, we're coming to the end. Most blessed of women be JL. <laughs> I go, are you sure? The wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. I wonder what that musical section sounded like. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoiled of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So it tells the story of Jael killing Sisera by driving a tent peg through his head. Again, verse 27, the idea of him sinking at, to her feet and between her feet, it can be translated between her knees or her leg, is also using sexual innuendo here to shame the man. You think you're so tough coming to this woman and you're going to go into her house and she's going to kill you. It's supposed to make him look weak and feminine. Now, many people have questioned JL's methods. I read a few commentators that were like, she did a good thing, but that doesn't mean that we should imitate her. All I can say is that Deborah has only good things to say about her. The most blessed of women. That's a, something that they would say about Mary later on. So there you go. And then she's singing about Cicero's mother. I, I bet his mama's wondering what's taking him so long to get home. What's taking him so long? Where is he? Where is the, where is the horses coming back? And she said, all the women are saying things that are really not great to say. Well, he's, he's clearly dividing the spoil. It's just they well, got so much treasure, it's just taking so long. And when it says in verse 30, a womb or two for every man, they're saying, well, it's taking him so long because there's lots of Israelite women for him to rape. No pity for the people of Hazor. 
We feel bad for his mom? No, we don't. Because they were fine with him going out and doing all those things so that he could bring back all kinds of dyed materials for them to wear and get all rich and fancy. Israelites mocking and singing, exulting against their enemies. While this passage is shaming the men, it's also exalting the women. It's just good to say, because people say we don't so long. God loves girls. God has a great plan for every woman in this room. And don't let other people tell you otherwise. Make them read the song of Deborah if they doubt you next time. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. So it concludes with the benediction. The battle is won. The land is at peace. But you can start to see this downward spiral here, can't you? This story is not as great as the last one. And the next one's not going to be quite as great as this one. And we ourselves are living in a similar predicament today where the, the gender issues are not good. You know, I, I've seen people say, and again, don't get too excited here as I say this. I've seen people saying, you know, countries like China and Russia are using social media and TikTok to try and push weird gender things upon our children. I have no idea if that's true or not. Here's what I can tell you. The devil is certainly doing that. Absolutely doing that. It doesn't really matter to me who he's using. If he's using them, then we've got to pray for them too. These sexual matters are key. This is one of the major issues of our time. We cannot compromise God's design here, which means, fellas, you've got to step up. Lead your home. Lead your wife. Correct her when she's wrong. Train up your children in the way they should go. Ladies, train the young women to be godly women. Don't let them go down this road of this sexual liberation and I don't need a man and I don't need kids and what do I want all that for? It does not lead to joy and happiness and it's quite simply not biblical. When we do things God's way, as we learn from this story and we work together, we can do anything. There's nothing that can stop us. The world doesn't get this. So the church has got to be better. Let's help each other walk this one out, okay?